look a lot alike, but I am in fact not Jonathan Perry. I am Haley Feierbacher, and um, I'm the campus minister at uh, the Denton Wesley Foundation, which is a student ministry serving um, the campuses of the University of North Texas, North Central Texas College, and Texas Women's University. And um, I am honored and blessed to be here with you today, and uh, I just want to give you a fair warning. We're going to do some work today. You thought you were going to come here and relax? You're not. You're going to do some work, all right? You're going to learn. I'm going to teach, and I'm comforted by the fact that the disciples called Jesus teacher, okay? So there's a precedent for this work. We're going to do some work together today. But because I work with college students, I thought it would be appropriate to start with a video from College Humor. So take a look. You gotta go to the bowl store. That awkward bowl showroom. Holding the bowls. I, I don't even... Wait, uh, sorry. Bowls? Like, um... Like bowls? <laughs> no way! <laughs> Thank you. This is really good. The regular way of shopping for bowls is really fine for me. I don't... This is gonna change everything. I got the idea in college. I was always going to these parties, and there were no bowls. I remember asking once where the bowls were, and somebody pointed me towards the weed, and I said, it's not the kind of bowl I mean. I mean for snacks. And they pointed me towards an open bag of chips, and I said, but why aren't they in a bowl? And the person just walked away. Or if there were bowls, they were just regular bowls from the store, not from the internet. And that's when I got the idea for Oyster and Toot. Great. I guess I'd put cereal in here, or I'll put soup in it, and I don't know, uh, maybe salsa. What else do people put in bowls? Salsa? Oh, that's seriously deep. We built our company to be different. Complete vertical bowl integration. You go on our website, you pick your bowl, and we send it directly to you. No middleman. Bobby Moynihan, the, the comedy guy? He started a bowl company for the internet? If you're not sure what bowl to buy, you can upload a picture of yourself and see how you would look interacting with our bowls. And you can find your perfect bowl by filling out our bowl profile. <sighs> The guesswork is completely taken out of bowl shopping. Like at a regular store, you could hold the bowl in your hand, you know? Like, not everything has to be online, right? Human beings have a wonderful tradition of food and feeding each other and sharing. And that's what bowls are about. That, uh... That's what I want to celebrate with this company. When you think about it, we're all connected. We're all one. We're all one. We're all one. We're all one. It's an online store for bowls? If you sign up for a subscription, we will send you a new bowl every month and charge your card for the $45. You can cancel any time. If your bowl doesn't fit, just send it back. Fit what, though? Fit what? The best part is, for every bowl we sell, we will donate a bowl to a part of the world where they need bowls. I feel like I'm doing something good for the planet, you know? Those big bowl companies, they never do something like this. I'll just give money to a charity separately. I mean, these things can be separate.
Bowls are cool. I love bowls. I started a bowl company after acting for years. Sorry, did he say $45? Oh, then no thank you. All right. There's a point to that. So today we're going to be talking about grace. And y'all have been doing some work looking at um, texts and narratives and new ways. And, you know, the central message of our faith is grace, right? That, That there's unlimited grace available to each and every one of us from God through the work of Christ. And, and this is the work that we are called to do as well. But what does this mean or look like in a world in which racism and violence and other forms of persecution and abuse and assault are rampant in our, our realities, right? So I'm not here to give answers, but I'm here to provide some biblical faithful options. So I think we've done two things to grace that distort it and maybe weaken what God intends for it to be in this world. The first thing that I think we've done is that we've made grace a synonym for forgiveness and reconciliation. So that it has no distinct meaning in of itself. Grace has no content other than to forgive and to reconcile. The second thing that I think that we've done is that we've treated grace like that guy in the video that thinks bowls are just bowls, right? Uh, that one size fits all. We treat grace like it's this stable, one size fits all thing that one type of grace, namely forgiveness, is what everybody needs in every situation all the time. And if, and if we're supposed to be grace-giving people then we have an obligation to give this one type of grace that looks like forgiveness and reconciliation to every single person, regardless of their needs, regardless of the content or the context, regardless of what's going on with ourselves. And I think that maybe we need to treat grace a little like a Bobby Moynihan oyster and toot treats bowls, right? Like it's more complex and individual and beautiful and nuanced than we thought. You know, maybe we need to give grace a little more thought and imagination and prayer and contemplation before we choose what kind of grace God is calling us to extend. So I want to tell you a little story about my 2015, a year when great things were happening in our nation and in this world. Well, that was my year of, I call it the year, well, I, I churched my, my word for it. If I call it the year of gross, that's what we're going to call it today. I use a different term, but it's not church-friendly, so we're going to call it the year of gross, all right? So <laughs> three distinctively rough things happened to me that year. Um, I was a youth minister. I'd been in the same church community for almost five years. Um, do we have any youth workers in here? Anybody work with youth? Middle schoolers or high schoolers? Okay, we got some. I see some hands. Well, I had the world's best youth group, seriously. Like, they were awesome. Um, and we'd been together for a while, so we all, like, knew each other, and we were all fairly predictable with each other. And then, all of a sudden, like, January 1 of 2015, they decided to just, like, disrupt everything, and we dealt with, like, drama for the very first time in this youth group, and there was a love triangle, and then somehow, you know, it became, like, my job to sort out the love triangle and two people were mad at each other because of the love triangle and they couldn't ever be in the same space because they just go after each other and they wanted they wanted each other kicked out of the youth group and why wasn't I kicking them out and this lasted for like six months and you know the the youth were like choosing sides and 
And so I started like doing a lot of lessons about forgiveness and grace and reconciliation. And, you know, and, and I talked to them about how they need each other and uh, how we are tasked with this commitment to stumble towards Christ together, right? Like we're going to stumble, but we're going to do it together. And, and, uh, and I talked to them about how we're supposed to have a disposition of grace, that we're supposed to assume that we're all kind of doing the best we can through life and, and uh, that we need to forgive one another when they hurt us for our own healing. And, and then two more things happened that made my teaching about forgiveness and grace maybe a little rougher for me to live out. And I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, I had two entities that had some authority and power over my life and my family and my, my livelihood just completely blindside me with betrayal and hurt for, like, no real apparent reason. And I never saw it coming, and, and, and they didn't feel bad about it, and it was totally disruptive, like, totally destructive to self and and the people I loved. And these were people that that I cared about and that I trusted that did this. Has anybody ever been in that place of just, like, complete and utter, like, devastation from betrayal? Yeah, I see hands. I see a lot of hands. You know what I'm talking about. And it was interesting because in these cases, my own theology of grace that I had, you know, been, been teaching and preaching for years into my own youth group, you know, that we need forgiveness for our own health and that we need to seek reconciliation, it was actually used by the perpetrators of harm at me, right, to gloss over the hurt and to get me to move on and to prevent me from holding anyone accountable, or notifying anyone else of what was going on. We were supposed to just scoot past this and let everything be. You know, there were lots of, of, of um, invitations for me to uh, move to a place of closure, even though these people were still continuing in power, were still unrepentant, were still doing what they were doing. You know, they had this goal of getting to me to be okay with what was being done to me and to let go of my anger. But this could continue, this could endanger innocent people, right? If these people are going on doing what they're doing to other people, it endangers innocent people. This was excusing sin and an abuse of power that was going on. And I thought, is this really on me? Like, God, is this really on me? Is my only option in my quest to be a Christ follower and a person of grace to model unconditional forgiveness for these people, to seek reconciliation with them, no matter what the offense is? And this is a question that I've carried with me since 2015. And I've carried it with me into conversations with a lot of y'all. I have several friends in this place who come to um, Intersect, which is a Bible study that um, the Denton Wesley hosts in collaboration with Open Worship. And we talk about these questions, and a lot of y'all have been incredibly informative in my own development of a theology of grace. Jonathan Perry, Crystal Stroud have been incredibly formative. Other students past and present at the Wesley, I credit all of y'all with this message today. Because these are questions that I've had that you've helped me at least respond to. Is anybody familiar with John Howard Yoder? 
Raise your hand. Anybody heard? Okay. John Howard Yoder, back when I was in divinity school, he was like the man for Christian pacifism. He's an ethicist and a theologian. And um, he was held in very high esteem. Um, As it turns out, though, over the years, over 50 people had um, attempted to press charges against this man for assault and abuse. And the institutions that hired him and the church that he was a part of covered it up for years until after his death. In um, 1990, I'm going to get the date wrong, 1992, I believe it was, Bethel College was the first institution to actually take action against him. He was invited to speak, and the survivors of this man's abuse threatened to stage a protest, and Bethel College said, we hear you, he's not welcome here. And then it wasn't until 2014 that his church said, we did something wrong. We did not listen to y'all. We did not take action. In fact, they told John Howard Yoder, you have gifts for teaching and writing, and we encourage you to continue to use those. And they were repentant. One of the survivors said, we've got this brilliant quote, we need a robust theology that wrestles with the complexity of pain healing, grace, forgiveness, accountability, and justice, or else we will re-ingrain theological categories that enable and shelter violence. That's what we're going to do today. And so I'm going to tell you a tale of two graces, okay? When it comes to having a disposition of grace, one size does not fit all. The oyster and toot bowl company was on to something here. Um, So there are at least two types of grace. I'm going to talk about two today. The first is reconciliatory forgiveness. Now, this is the one that we oftentimes encourage in in faith-based communities. I see this example, an example of this, in one of my favorite stories from Scripture. It's in the foot-washing story from John 13. And Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. I love this story. And if you're not catching on, this isn't just about like foot washing, okay? Like there's an analogy here, right? So, um, you know, Peter's feet, like physically his feet are like really gross and dirty because that's what happens when you walk around in sandals all day. I should know. And um, so, you know, Jesus is performing this act of service. But I really think this is less about an act of service and more about what grace looks like in different contexts. And so we see that Peter, you know, he's about to, he's about to do something really hurtful to Jesus. He's about to deny that he even knows Jesus. And Jesus knows this, right? Because he tells Peter, hey, in just a second, you're going to do something bad. And um, 
The interesting thing, though, is that we see that when Peter does this, he's doing this out of, like, fear, right? He, when people um, are asking him whether or not he knows Jesus, this is in the context of Jesus going to the cross. And Peter's looking at this going, oh, my gosh, they're going to crucify me, too. I don't know what to do. And he's confused, and he's scared, and he blurts out, I don't know Jesus, never seen the man. It's wrong. It's hurtful. But I don't think it came out of a place of predetermined, pre-planned intention to harm Jesus. And so what Jesus is getting at here with Peter is that this is a guy who's trying, right? This is a guy whose heart is, is geared towards Christ, who's been converted, who, who, who knows what Jesus is trying to do in the world and who wants to get in, on board with it. And he's, he's going to screw up. As he tries to practice what Jesus is teaching him, he's doing just that. He's practicing. And practice isn't per- perfect. It's messy. And so Jesus is like, calm down, Peter. You're not that dirty, right? You're just a little messed up on your feet. And I can take care of it. And so we see examples of this throughout Scripture, Okay, we see it with the prodigal son's brother. You know, the, the prodigal son's brother wants to withhold reconciliation from his brother. Even though the prodigal son was repentant and he had no power or status anymore. And the whole story is about like, why would you withhold grace from someone who's trying to like, I don't know, do the right thing, you know? And these examples, and the example of Peter, and the example that Jesus tells to his community, community about the prodigal son. Jesus is talking to a community of his followers who are equals with one another. There's the assumption in this community of a covenantal commitment to one another, to love one another, to love God, to live in mutuality and reciprocity and equality and not abuse. Right? And as we practice following Christ and practice loving God and others and self, we're going to stumble and we're going to slip up, but we fall towards Christ. St. Augustine actually says this. This is like theological precedent. Like, as we're trying to do the right thing, we're going to make mistakes, but we fall forward towards Christ. And so when we do that, right, we need forgiveness for our stumblings. Jesus' teachings here, though, are rooted in our ability in context of equality, in contexts where we can assume that we're all doing the best we can to practically and compassionately forgive each other. The goal of a grace that looks like reconciliatory forgiveness is to remind us who we are, what God made us to be and called us to do, and how our actions, beliefs, and behaviors may hurt or harm others. It's a reminder, right? It's also, it also has the goal of reconciling us back into right and loving relationship with each other, with God and with ourselves, and to heal the brokenness caused by the hurt that we sometimes commit as we try to figure out how to be Christians in a complex world. And it also has the goal of restoring us to new life and new hope and a new us who's better and more equipped to follow Christ. 
Now, all these things take place in a community of equality where we can assume that we all are in this covenantal relationship with self and with God and with others, right? But here's the problem. We've created this narrative that says that all sin is the same in God's eyes. That every time we stumble, all stumbling is sin, and it might as well be murder because it breaks God's heart all the same. And this simply, friends, this simply isn't true. This simply isn't true. Notice that Jesus treats Judas differently than Peter. He tells Peter, it's just your feet, don't worry about it. Like, I can take care of it. And then he says, but not all of you are clean in the same way as Peter. Because Judas had premeditated a betrayal. Judas had plenty of opportunity to hear what Jesus was saying and get on board with that, right? And so Jesus is alluding to a difference between Peter's stumbling and Judas's sin. John Wesley says that sin is an overt, voluntary breach of the law of love. This is sin and nothing else, says John Wesley. John Wesley. And so when we treat the breaking of, the, of love and trust, As, when we treat um, the breaking of this in a patterned or purposeful or persistent or self-promoting way as though it's on the same level as like us losing patience in a moment of stress or us trying to do the right thing and being confused and making the wrong choice, we end up doing a couple of things here. As we stumble in our pursuit of Christ, if we believe that our stumbling is this devastating failure in God's eyes, we sink into shame. And that's not a motivating feeling. That's a dehumanizing feeling. The second thing that happens is if we treat the stumbling as the same as sin— then we fail to hold people who commit actual sins accountable for their actions in a way that seeks justice and centers the needs of the victim. And along with that, we fail to create space and opportunities for the perpetrator to be transformed. Right? So what happens, I think, is that if reconciliatory forgiveness is our obligatory answer for our stumblings, and we believe that stumblings and sin are the same thing, and Peter and Judas were on the same level there, then we'll try to apply reconciliatory forgiveness to cases of sin like abuse, assault, violence, racism, exploitation. And this not only lets perpetrators off easy, but it makes it incumbent on victims to heal their abusers. It forces them to reconcile with them and to let go of their anger, regardless of whether or not justice and accountability were ever served. This is a tough message to preach, friends, but it is a liberating one, so bear with me. The fact is, as Frederick W. Keene says, unconditional human forgiveness sometimes bumps up against justice. Forgiveness as the only way of grace is used often as a spiritual weapon against the victim and the vulnerable. We say things like, you know, church unity is central, so, you know, keep quiet with your hurt. We've centralized the redemption of the offender and forget about the need of the survivor. We hold victims responsible for an ideal Christian outcome. 
Um, I'm working on a dissertation. I've been working on it for like eight years, and there's no end in sight. Um, and um, one of the things that I do in my work is that I do field work on um, messages in churches um, that hurt single moms. And so I visited some single-parent ministries, and I went to one um, in which they shared this message that um, we have to, in order to heal from whatever hurt us in our past relationships, we have to admit our own responsibility for the failure of the relationship. Now, I'm sure I don't need to walk you through the harm of that message, that the step to healing is to accept responsibility for how you contributed to the end of that relationship. This is not an uncommon message, though. I believe that we can be grace givers, committed to love, without pursuing reconciliatory forgiveness for every single sin. I think there might be another way. So I'd like to invite you to read with me Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 32. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. I think this is an example of something, a different kind of grace, and I'd like to call this restorative justice. Restorative justice focuses on repairing the harm caused by a crime. Restorative justice says that justice is a prerequisite for forgiveness. In situations of abuse and harm, forgiveness without some form of justice is not love. It's not loving to the victim, and it's not even loving to the perpetrator to let them off the hook without requiring some repentance and some transformation. Whatever is dehumanizing to the victim is dehumanizing to the perpetrator as well, because that is not what we are created to be. Love is supposed to be self-giving, seeking mutuality. Love is supposed to be giving of ourselves to one another in a way that hopes for the return of that love. And when that's not in place, that's abuse, and we can't continue to license that. Okay? In the New Testament, interpersonal forgiveness is only possible. We only see this as being a possibility when the forgiver, the person who was harmed, is equal to the perpetrator of the harm, the one that's in need of forgiveness. Anytime there's a hierarchy or a power imbalance in which the perpetrator or the abuser retains power over the victim, it was shown to be inappropriate. We are never, ever, ever given an example where somebody outside of power, the victim, is required to offer forgiveness to the perpetrator as long as they remain in power and are unrepentant. Grace freely given, which we see in scripture, it's spoken about in Luke and by Paul, is almost always granted by God, who has the ultimate power, right? Biblical forgiveness is simply not unconditional. This is cheap grace. 
to not require repentance and transformation and just to dole it out? That's not making us better, friends. That's cheap. And Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for this. Restorative justice has a goal of metanoia. That term means transformation. And this requires that the perpetrator give up power over the harmed party to create the possibility for forgiveness. And it also requires repentance, which means turning from one's sin. We're told in Luke 17.3 to be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. If there is repentance, you must forgive. So what I think we need here is a new definition of grace. I've talked with um, Jonathan a lot about this, and he's been very helpful in helping me reconceptualize grace as recreation. Recreation. Grace is the ability to recreate. And sometimes when we are the harmed ones, the survivors, the victims... All we are called to do is to hope and pray that God recreates the perpetrator. This is grace. I want to turn back to the story of Jesus on the cross. We see that Jesus, as the victim, as the martyr, hanging on the cross, in such vulnerability, in such pain, outsources forgiveness to the Father. Father, forgive them. These people who have authority over me right now, Father, forgive them. These people who have power over me and who are unrepentant, I can't do it, but I hope you can. I hope you can change their hearts. And what I didn't include is the next part of this passage. Jesus offers grace to one of the criminals hanging next to him, an equal Jesus readily forgives that person. But in that moment, Jesus outsources to God. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Transformation does not come through submissiveness to unrepentant people who think they've done nothing wrong. And that's what Jesus shows us. Restorative justice also requires a commitment to the power of love on the part of us who are hurt. This is what we are called to as Christ followers. See, Jesus' death is written as a part of a genre called a martyr story. We see other examples of martyr stories in the Bible, like in Genesis 4, 10, and 11. This is the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain murders Abel. And typically in martyr stories, there's a cry for vengeance. Here on the cross, Jesus cries for grace. Jesus overturns the politics of hatred and heralds a social reform. Jesus prays for and demands the grace of recreation and transformation and metanoia, even when he can't directly give it. Jesus transforms society by offering recreating grace to us all, by refusing to hate or escalate violence or pass on hatred and feuding to future generations. And this is the work that we can do. This doesn't mean that we can't be angry. This does not mean that we have to be okay with the perpetrator or coexist in the same space. It doesn't mean that we have to allow them back into their positions of power once they're sorry for what they did. It does mean, though, 
that we hold others accountable at the same time that we either create opportunities or hope that others can create opportunities for the recreation of those who hurt us into someone who never harms others again. Jesus is committed to the power of love, to transform systems of sin, abuse, and hatred, as well as individual hearts that are shaped by these things, and to bring a future of reconciled and covenantal relationships. And finally, restorative justice is survivor-centered. There's no one Christian way to deal with harm and evil. In fact, we can probably say more about what grace isn't than what grace is. But what we can't do is pressure survivors to conform to reconciliatory forgiveness. We, unconditional forgiveness is simply not the only alternative to bitterness. Biblical forgiveness is never figured as a matter or of or a tool for improving a victim's mental health. Right? What we have to do, though, what we have to encourage in our quest to be survivor-centered is letting go of living in the pain of the abuse. This is grace for the survivor. We have to encourage the survivor to recreate oneself as a survivor, even a victor rather than a victim, to become an advocate or a champion or a counselor, an activist, or whatever form of Christ follower the healing version of you chooses to be. And this is our Christian act of grace. And I'm going to skip forward a bit from... um, If y'all have questions about anything on the slides that I have not touched, then you can ask me afterwards. I have so much to say, but I want to be faithful to our time together today. And I want to reiterate that sometimes grace means giving the matter of reconciliation and repentance to God, unless you feel otherwise. Um, I think that grace is the hope of and creation of possibilities and conditions for recreation. First for the victim, also for the repentant perpetrator who divests themselves of power over the ones that they've harmed. I think grace for the victim means protection and love. I think grace for the perpetrator means accountability, justice, and the demand that power over others be relinquished. As we center the victim and shower them with the grace of recreation and transformation, we have to recognize that this may very well mean that we can't be a space for recreation for the perpetrator in our own community. But it's something that we choose together, that we decide together as we discern God's way. The story of Paul and Barnabas strikes me as relevant here. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, specifically Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church. And then he encountered God, and he was converted, and he repented. And he came to the church at Jerusalem, and he said, I feel called to share my story. I feel called to be a minister of God's grace. And the Jerusalem church said, we can't have you lead here. There's too much hurt. You're too triggering a presence. It's not that we don't want you to lead for God. It's that this is not the space for you to recreate who you are. But there will be other spaces. And a man named Barnabas said, you know what? I'll go with him. I'll go with this guy. He's not triggering to me. We're cool. We'll go out and we'll, you know, we don't have to stay in the Jerusalem church. We'll go out in the world and we'll we'll spread the message of God's grace. Maybe you're called to be a Barnabas. Maybe you're called to be the Jerusalem church. 
Both of those positions are grace-giving in their own right. Both of them are correct. Both of them are Christ-like. I think as we pursue our call to grace, we are called to seek covenantal Christ-like community. And in so doing, we are called to believe in and invest in and create a better existence in world, whatever that may look like. In my own story, going back to the year of gross in 2015, in one case, one person ended up being deeply repentant. And after a long time, long time of healing and prayer, I was able to reconcile and forgive in a way that offered restoration. But I put up very strict boundaries that I demand respect for, and they have honored those boundaries. I didn't think that our relationship could be repaired, but thank God it has. And it is rich and thriving, and I'm so thankful for it. And I'm so surprised by it. And in the other case, that person is still in power and has never apologized. And so I'm okay knowing that we're never going to be okay. And I'll always get angry thinking about what he did because injustice should always make us angry. But his harm is no longer going to have power over me. And I'm going to hope and pray that that doesn't happen again to somebody else. That God will transform. But that's not the work that I have to do in this person's life. I'm relinquishing that. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping for a better future. And I'm okay leaving that work to God. I want to end my time with you um, before I go into prayer, inviting you to join us at Intersect. This is a tough, robust, life-giving Bible study that we do on the second and fourth Sunday of every month, and it just so happens this is the second Sunday of the month at 7 o'clock at the Denton Wesley Foundation. We wrestle with these questions, and some of us come up with very different responses, and that's beautiful. We also do things like um, put on the Church 2 conference, which happened this past April, and it will happen again this next April. And this is a time where we try to hold the church accountable for the ways that it has sheltered and protected abuses of power. And we're going to change that. I would love for you to be part of this change. I invite you now to go with me into a time of prayer. Lord, you have led me to this understanding of grace and justice and the incisive edge of love. Thank you for sending me guides to this. Thank you for setting an example of this. Thank you for giving me and us your wisdom where I never could have figured a way through on my own and for working so beautifully to transform and recreate us as we stumble towards you. Thank you for those who have forgiven me as I stumble towards you and help me to discern when reconciliatory forgiveness and when restorative justice are your will. Help us all to be grace givers, lovers of mercy and doers of justice as we seek to advocate for the victim and hold accountable those who break the sacred relationships of love that you built us for. Amen.